Today's episode is brought to you by Break Through the Noise, the new book by Tim Staples, co-founder and CEO of Shareability. In his book, Tim reveals his secret sauce for how to capture the attention of millions of people online without spending millions of dollars. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Jeb Blount. He is a sales acceleration specialist, founder of Sales Gravy, and the author of a couple of books, Fanatical Prospecting, I think we had him on here for, and then also the book we're going to talk about today, Objections, The Ultimate Guide for Mastering the Art and Science of Getting Past No. So, Jeb, welcome, welcome back. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be back on. appreciate you having me on. So, Objections seems like a pretty specific part of the sales process. So, so let's start out there. Why, why a book just on that aspect? Well, if you if you think about most sales books, there's a like a little part at the very back of every sales book on objections. There are very few books that have been written on objections, and even in training that we deliver uh, and that corporations deliver to their people, objections kind of take a back seat. But when we think about objections and and the and and what objections are, you're dealing with objections all the way through the entire sales process. From the moment that you get someone on the telephone and you're prospecting, they may tell you they don't they don't have time for a meeting, to throwing out red herrings in the middle of your your sales process that take you off track, to micro commitment objections, getting them to advance to a next step, and then finally buying and selection commitment objections. So no matter what you do, no matter what you sell, no matter how you sell it, there's a great democracy in objections, and objections are everywhere in the sales process. But we just haven't addressed it. And what I realized is that when I was dealing with entrepreneurs and I was dealing with uh, people in marketing and I was dealing with people in sales and even dealing with people in nonprofit, almost all the questions that they ask about me is, what do I do when someone tells me no? And that's why I made the decision to write this book and to really break down the science of, 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 of objections, the science of why they hurt so much, and why do buyers give us rejections, and then creating frameworks that allow people in the moment to deal with those objections, get past them, and keep their, their deals advancing. Yeah, because for a lot of people, you know, objection is is really rejection. <laughs> I mean, the you know they don't get past the you know the early on stages, and that's where people give up. Um, and and I think a lot of what you're saying is is you gotta you gotta expect this stuff, and you gotta look for it, and you have to overcome it maybe multiple times. And I think that's probably the part that makes. It, uh, I don't know how to say this the right way. That's the part of the, that makes people not like selling so much, but it's also, isn't it the part that people that get really good at it enjoy the most? Yeah, I think that you're right. So there's, you know, pers- persistence is a virtue, especially in sales and in business. And, you know, I, I, I opened the book with a story about a guy that called me 71 times and ended up selling me a software program that changed my business, that changed the trajectory of our company. Uh, it helped us grow very fast. And, and if he hadn't been so persistent, I probably wouldn't have bought it. So he really helped me out. Uh, you know, I've, um, I, I tell a story in the book where I called, uh, I called, uh, Fuji Film was a client that I was looking to, to, to do business with. I called them over 50 times until they finally met with me. And then, and uh, what I, which I think is, you know, what people miss in this is when I showed up, they had their head of sales at the meeting and the head of sales was trying to hire me to come work for their company because he was so impressed with my persistence. So, 
and we're talking about persistence in a lot of cases, we're talking about the objections that you get really early on, which are the harshest objections, and they can be rejection that you get. So when you call someone asking for time, you're interrupting their day, and you're asking for the one thing they don't have any of, and that is time. Those particular objections are, are the, the things that I think make people run from sales the most. Those aren't the only objections you get, but those are certainly the harshest objections. And the thing about objections is that they aren't necessarily rejections. Sometimes they are, especially when you're prospecting. But our brains treat an objection like it's a rejection because we perceive it to be that way. Uh, and, and, and in the worst cases, we anticipate that we're going to get rejected. So we never even make the call or make the approach because we start worrying about what's going to happen when someone tells us no. And in, in the book itself, what we, what we really deal with is that, that feeling that you get of rejection, and whether it's anticipated, whether it's real, or whether uh, it, is, uh, it is perceived, um, that feeling that you have is much more biological than psychological. So it's important to be aware of where it comes from so that in the moment you can rise above the emotion that you feel and choose your response. And that, by the way, is the real key of getting past the objection and getting to what you want. Well, and I've got to, I'm, I'm going to guess, I could be wrong, but that person that called you 71 times believed in the value that you could receive. And that's what like kept them coming back. Am I, am I way off base there? Absolutely. Well, I think, I think two things. One, um, he was absolutely had absolute conviction in the quality of the product that he was selling. And he was right about that it is a high quality software. And also he had done a really good job of targeting. So he had done a very good job of deciding which companies were the best fit for that product. And my company sells gravy. We're a, a fairly well-known sales training company. We work across the globe. We have a high, you know, a high profile. So one of the things for him was if I can get sales gravy to buy this, then I can get a, a lot of other training companies to buy this because I can tell them that sales gravy is my client. And I knew that was part of what he was doing. And he, and he, and he was upfront about that, about what an, what an important prospect we were to him. And so when you have the right prospect that you, where you know that what you're selling is a fit, and you know it can really help them, then that gives you that, you know, that emotional reason to keep facing the fact that you're getting knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, because I told him to go away a dozen times. Uh, it, it allows you to do that. Thankfully, he had so much conviction in what, he, in what he's selling that he didn't stop, and, it, and it's made all the difference for us as an organization. And I can tell you straight up, the software that he sold us has helped us double the size of our company three years in a row. That's how powerful that was. So... Let's focus on the prospecting part, which a lot of that was what he was doing. Um, for a lot of people, that's the hardest part. I mean, 90% of people don't get past that uh, because it's so easy. It's like, no, I don't have time for you. Click. And and to the buyer's defense a little bit, I mean, I get those calls all the time. And I don't. I just don't have the time to invest in determining <laughs> uh, a lot of times, as, as, as I suspect you did, that that software was a good fit. No matter, you know, all the promises, like, yeah, I get – you know, I get that five times a day. What if it doesn't? <laughs> so I can't take the time. So, so how do you get past the fact that a lot of people just see that as you interrupting? Well, you are interrupting. I mean, this, it's just the fact that the matter you're interrupting and you're asking them for the one thing that they don't have any of, and that is time. 
So there's a couple of things. One of the things that Richard did really well in this situation is that he built familiarity. So by the time, the last time he got me on the telephone, I knew who he was. I'd heard his voice. I'd seen dozens of emails. He stalked me on LinkedIn. He'd called me and left me voicemails. When I finally had a moment, I, I, I was in a situation where I couldn't say, no, I'm not going to give you time because honestly, as a human being with, with some level of empathy, he had just earned the right to have the conversation. The, the, the second thing that, you know, that he did was he was able to change his message because he left me so many voicemails. I heard different messages, so he built these little commercials for me along the way. So for him, he did that. I mean, he, he got to the point where I knew who he was and he had earned the right. And part of, like you said, do I know whether or not this is really worth my time? Part of that is that the salesperson keeps showing up over and over and over again because if you think about it, most salespeople hit the no once and they never call back again. And I see that every day in corporate America when we're working with people, we're working with a salesperson, the question they ask is, how many times should I call? And the answer is that they currently have is, I call once, they tell me no, I never call back again. And a great example is I was working with this small company uh, up in New York City and they sold advertising into restaurants. So I was out with their salespeople on the street in New York City, cold calling restaurants. They were walking door to door, walking in and interrupting the day of restaurant managers in New York City, the hardest place in the world to sell. And when we walked in, they told us to go screw ourselves. I mean, we got, and we got told no in about 60 different languages. And then we went back the next day and went back the next day and went back the next day. And it took about five times of walking in and them seeing you before they would give you a second look. And then they would say like, yeah, get out of here, but come back tomorrow. And you knew you would, you'd crack them. And then you come in the sixth time and then they would give you a few minutes. You go in the seventh time, you got a meeting because their, their filter about, you know, for whether or not it's worth their time to invest in you was basically predicated on did you have the chops to keep showing up over and over and over again? And I did the same thing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I love salespeople. It's what I do for a living. But I tell salespeople to go away all the time. And it's the ones that keep at it that eventually will at least get in or I will at least look at their message. And if I look at their message and I determine it's not right for me, I'll be respectful enough to tell them why it's not the right time or right for me rather than just brushing them off with I don't have time. Yeah, so in a, in a, in a way, um, you're asking them to invest in you <laughs> before you'll invest in them. And I think that's a great way, great way to look at it. So we talked about the prospecting one. You mentioned red herrings and micro commitments and, and the fourth one, you know, kind of that buying commitment. So I guess maybe, um, maybe just briefly state what those are. And then I'd love you to talk about some tactics for kind of turning those around. Sure. So red herring objections are really not, re they're not real objections, but what typically when we're in these, in these conversations, sales conversations, uh, especially for entrepreneurs, you know, we feel nervous. A lot of it's because we have everything on the line and uh, we feel a little bit vulnerable. And in, in those initial meetings, what'll happen is you're having a conversation with someone and they'll say, well, listen, you know, I can't talk anymore until I know how much it costs, or I just want you to know I'm not buying a day. 
And they'll throw something like that out really early in the conversation. And what happens is we end up chasing that and we burn all the time that we have with them dealing with something that's not really a price objection. It's just what they say. They don't really have anything else to say to you. So it's important in those situations that you acknowledge it. So I just, the way I acknowledge it, anytime I get a red herring, I just write it down on a piece of paper, ask them if there's anything else. And then I move directly into my conversation, which is usually sounds like this. It says, I say, if it'd be okay with you, let me ask you a few questions about you. And then we can talk about what we do. And you and I can determine from there whether or not it makes sense for us to keep talking. So I use sort of the I use this process where I just I pause for just a moment, acknowledge it, write it down, and I ignore it. Most of the time, red herrings never, ever come back up again. And sometimes they're important. Write it down. Come back to it later. But don't allow a red herring to disrupt your conversation. Maintain control and keep the, you know, keep the meeting moving the way you want it to move. And micro-commitment objection is really simple. All a sales is is a set of, a set of commitments. So prospecting is asking for time. Sales is asking for commitments, and those commitments are small micro-commitments along the way. So, for example, if I'm selling something and the best way that I can determine what to sell you is to go walk through your, your say, your, your warehouse or walk through your building or take a look at your data or spend a day in the life with one of your AR clerks, whatever the case may be, um, if I'm doing that, I want to ask for micro-commitments. And the more micro-commitments I can get along the way, the more my buyer is invested in the process, which means it's more likely that they're going to see it through to an outcome and my opportunity is not going to stall. So I'm constantly asking people for my micro-commitments. It test engagement. It makes sure that we're moving forward. But from time to time, they'll say no. And they'll say, you know, I don't understand why we need to go do a tour of my warehouse. I mean, it's just a warehouse. Why can't you just send me a quote? Or I don't know why we would need to do that. Or um, why don't you just email me the proposal and then I'll call you and we can meet later versus setting up a meeting with you. The thing about micro-commitments is all you have to do is just explain the value. These are real, you know, low-key objections. They're not harsh. They're rarely rejection. Uh, we get a little bit flustered, but all you have to do is explain the value. So if someone says, look, I don't know why we need to do this, I say, listen, you know, the reason that this is important is because the way I work as an organization is that every solution that I build is custom to my client's unique situations. And until I get to know you, it's going to be impossible for me to put together a blueprint for how we would serve you. And all I'm going to need is about 15 minutes of your time to go through this information. So how about Thursday at 2? Really simple. If you can give a good explanation, they will rarely tell you no. And then finally, there are buying commitment objections. And buying commitment objections are just people's – it's their concern about making a mistake. It's their fear of taking risk. Um, it's, it's their attachment to the status quo, what I'm doing now, even though it's not perfect – is probably going to be better than taking a risk of change. And with micro commitment or with buying commitment objections, it's really about building your case through discovery, making sure that you've done all your work along the way. You really understand what's important to them, why they would do this. And it's relating to them as a human being, making sure that you are clarifying exactly what they mean. So if someone says, your, your price is too much, my question is always, how so? Help me understand that. Because sometimes it's, it's maybe the startup cost, but not the ongoing cost. And then, and then the key here is with buying commitment objections is recognizing that buying commitment objections almost always come from a place of fear. It's just natural for human beings. We're adverse to risk. 
And along, you know, as we've gone through our, you know, our lives, when we, when we avoid risk, we have a tendency to stay alive. So it's part of our makeup. So you have to minimize their fear while maximizing the future outcomes, while showing them what they're going to get. And the best way to have the ammunition that you need in a buying commitment objection is to have done a good job in the sales process, doing deep discovery and built a good business case. Just to let you know, this episode is brought to you by Break Through the Noise, the new book by Tim Staples. If you're a marketer, an entrepreneur, or a small business owner, and you have a limited budget to market to and connect with your customers, you need Break Through the Noise. Tim Staples shares the nine essential rules for mastering the art of online storytelling and provides tools to help you outsmart the social media algorithms, increase your share of voice, and build your brand. Break Through the Noise by Tim Staples is on sale now wherever books are sold. So you spend a good chunk of the book talking about asking as a, as a skill and how and why. And um, I think that's a part that m- most sort of beginning salespeople miss, isn't it? That they want to show up and talk about their stuff. And a lot of times we're not even given the we're not even giving the buyer a chance to object to anything <laughs> um, because we want to talk about ourselves. So how, how do we how do we develop this habit of you know making sure that we're asking plenty of questions before we start trying to sell anything? Well, I think I think first of all, you're exactly right. You've got to ask questions and do discovery. And the the easiest thing to remember is this. When you ask for the sale, if you haven't asked questions to begin with, you're going to be dealing with price. So you're going to go straight to the bottom, deal with price, because that's the only thing that differentiates you. When you ask great questions, when you get out of your own way, rather than just pitching and you know and explaining and telling, uh, when you do that and, you, and then you go you want to buy, the only way they can buy from you is based on you lowering your price, because you created no differentiation from your competitors. So that's one part of asking. One is asking questions, open-ended questions artful and strategic questions that provoke awareness uh, and building your business case. The problem with, you know, with, with salespeople more often than not with asking is they don't ask for what they want. So for example, if I want to come do a tour of your facility, I have to ask for that. If I want the sale, I have to ask you to do business with me. If I want time, I have to ask you for time. And the problem is, is when we ask, it creates this deep sense of vulnerability. We ask with confidence that we want something, then the person could tell us no. We begin anticipating that we're going to get rejected. And therefore, we don't ask at all. We, what we do is we sit and wait for the prospect to do the job for us, that they're going to somehow come to their senses and, and close the deal or give us time or what have you. And it just doesn't work that way. And one of my favorite quotes from Jim Rome is that asking is the beginning of receiving. I mean, we, 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 we have to, if we want a deal, we have to ask first. So asking is the most important discipline in sale, asking for what you want. If you want to get something, you have to ask for it. And, and the, 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 you know, we start the book that way because when you ask, you are going to get told no. When you ask, you are going to get rejected. Those things are true. And when you begin anticipating that or when you – when you change your behavior because you don't want to feel the pain of rejection, all of a sudden you stop asking or you ask in a way that is so passive and insecure that you're never going to get what you want. 
So what you need is, first of all, to understand where that pain comes from so that you can be aware of it. Awareness is the mother of change. But, but, but next, you have to have a set of frameworks so that when you ask and you get the objection, when it happens to you, that you can rise above the emotion. And what, what I teach people when I'm working with them on objections is that the emotion that you feel about being rejected, because it's not comfortable, nobody likes to feel that way, that happens without your consent. You don't get to choose the emotion. The only thing you can choose is how you respond to that. You can, what, what you're going to do next, how you rise above it. And, and one of the really simple mechanisms that we teach people is something called the ledge. And it's what neuroscientists call the magic quarter second. So when you get someone telling you no, an objection, that happens at the, your response is at the emotional level. And it kicks off something called fight or flight, which changes your physiology and it changes the way that you deal with it. And it makes it really hard to think. So the ledge, this magic quarter second, gives you just a moment to get your neocortex or your, your thinking rational brain in executive control over your response. So for example, if I asked you for time and you said, um, Jeb, I'm too busy today, my ledge in this situation would be that's exactly why I called because I figured you would be. I say that every single time, but just that, that simple moment of having something that I say and respond to, anytime someone says that to me, someone says your prices are too, too high, I always say, how so? But because I have that, it gives me a moment to think. And if I can have that moment to think, I can get out of the emotional state that I'm in that makes it difficult for me to respond and get back into a rational state that allows me to be in control of my emotions and therefore deliver a response that helps me get past the objection. And the one thing that you must take to the bank and understand about your interactions with people in a sales conversation is that the person in that conversation that exerts the greatest amount of emotional control is the person who has the highest probability of getting the outcome that they desire. Yeah, and I, and I think it probably also has a little bit of impact of disarming the sort of knee-jerk reaction, right? I'm too busy, your price too high. I mean, some of, some of that's just defense, isn't it? And, and if we aren't prepared to sort of deflect that <laughs> defense mechanism, we're never going to get a chance to show the value we can bring. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's probably when you know we think about that more. Let's focus on disrupting the pattern. So when someone says I'm too busy, typically that's just their it's a reflex response. It's what I call them buyer scripts, right? So it's just what they say. So if you say I'm too busy, I'm going to say that's exactly why I called because I figured you would be. They're not expecting that. I mean, they're not expecting a salesperson to say that. They're expecting me to argue with them or to say what's a better time to call you. I just say that's exactly because I figured you would be, and all I want to do is find a time that's more convenient for you. I see that every single time. It's got about a 70% probability of getting, a, you know, getting the person to tell me yes. So in, in that particular case, uh, I've got a stock response. Uh, I was just working with a rep who is selling into CFOs, and he sells software that helps them reduce their, um, their SG&A costs. And he was having a hard time dealing with it when the CFO said, I'm not interested, because they all say I'm not interested, because they're too busy. And, uh, and his response, the way that he broke that up, is said, that's exactly what I thought you'd say, because every CFO I call tells me they're not interested before they learn that we can rapidly reduce their SG&A cost and give them the ability to invest that money in places that grow the business. And the, the, the week before he, he was using that turnaround, he got four meetings. The week that he started using that turnaround, he got 18 meetings. 
So it was just breaking through that little bit of resistance and doing something that allowed him to rise above the emotion and then disrupted the pattern of that CFO, I'm not interested, that that moved them to a place where they were willing to meet with him. And that's when he began, you know, could begin to make the case because you can't make the case on a simple prospecting call. It's moving fast. You interrupted their day. You need to get the meeting to have that conversation. All right. I'm going to end on uh, one you can probably swat right out of the park, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you this question because I'm sure that lots of listeners out there and lots of folks that come to you, uh, probably have this. So you have a um, a story in there that you yes has a number, and you essentially say you know if you ask like a lot of salespeople, you have to ask enough people in order to get to yes uh, with with somebody. But here's my question: So you had the number in there at eleven. You asked people to sing "Mary Had a Little Lamb," and you said typically somewhere around eleven by the eleventh person, you finally got somebody to do it. So let me ask you this: Does that mean though that ten people were damaged along the way? No. I mean, I was the stories. I was in New York City. I was more damaged than not because I was usually getting fu when I asked the question. So I was the one that was, you know, was getting damaged. But most people, after I asked them, you know, they went on with their life. I mean, they may have at dinner said, "Hey, this crazy guy on the street asked me to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb" into a camera. But more often than not, they just forget. Like they have no idea. Let me let me make sure I focus on that. I, I you use that as an example. I just so let's say just in the cold calling environment. Um, is what I'm really asking. So yeah, you finally find finally find somebody who will meet with you, but the ten people and, and I'm saying damage. That's harsh, but I mean, are the ten people that you know that you interrupted, um, you know, have you know had a bad experience? Only if you're a total schmuck, but other than that, no. I, a great example of this is I was working with a group up in Atlanta. And we were doing cold calls. I was working, worth working with them doing cold calls. The fourth person I called was just the meanest, most awful human being. She was so ugly to me. And I've made thousands of calls, but she really hurt my feelings. Then I was even thinking, man, this is Atlanta, Georgia. So usually you get told no nicer than you do in New York City. So it was bothering me, but I couldn't flinch because I'm in front of a bunch of reps that I'm training how to do cold calls. So I kept on going. But Finally, it was bothering me so bad, I went back to the top of the list, and I called her back 30 minutes after I'd called her the first time. And when she answered the phone, I did exactly the same thing that I'd done the first time. And she said, yeah, come on by on Wednesday. She didn't even remember that I called her. She, I don't know what she was in the middle of. I don't know what was going on, but that happened. My son called me earlier this week and and said, um, he said, I can't I, I believe this. He said, I talked to the CEO, CEO uh, two weeks ago, who told me that the that, go away, I'm never going to do business with you. And oh, by the way, I'm busy for the next six years. So don't ever call me back again. He said, you know, I was sitting there and I was thinking about it. I'm like, I'm going to call the guy back. So he says two weeks later, I call him back. He said, I changed my message up just a little bit. And he said, I ended up getting the meeting. And, um, and it's like, that's what happens to people all the time is that you, you get off the phone thinking that that person is still thinking about you, but they're not. It's probably no different than, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic and you drive on and you're so pissed off at them and you're thinking about them grinding your teeth and, and thinking about all the things you can do in retribution. And meanwhile, that person is driving on. They haven't given you a second thought. They're just going on with their day. All you are is an inconvenient interruption and they forgot about you the minute that you got off the phone 
unless, of course, I mean, if you're just a total, you know, jerk on the phone to them, they may not forget you. But that's just it's so rare for salespeople to do that. You just usually I try to get past an objection a couple of times. If I don't, I hang up and then I move on and I call them back a couple of days later. So uh, you're not going to cause any damage calling people, doing prospecting, having conversations. More than more often than not, you're going to create respect because you're willing to call back, which I, I think is essentially what happened to my son when the CEO realized that this kid who's 21 years old wasn't willing to back down. That CEO had deeper respect for that for you know for for him and was willing to give him 20 minutes of his time. Jeff, where can people find out more about you and Sales Gravy and uh, any of your books? Absolutely. Um, all my books, I've written 10 books. They're on uh, Amazon, so you can grab those. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, most bookstores, most airports, you'll find my books. Uh, SalesGravy.com is uh, my flagship website. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of free resources there that you can grab. You can get my podcast um, along with this one because this is a podcast that Mark and I listen to every single week, but you can grab my podcast on all the major podcast providers. Sales Gravy, G-R-A-V-Y is the easiest way to pop that in. YouTube channel, thousands are thousands, about four or 500 videos there, I think. And then you can catch me on all the major social networks. I'm at Sales Gravy wherever you go. Well, Jeb, it was great catching up with you, and uh, hopefully we'll run into you there soon out on the road. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 